Welcome to the King's Word Bible Study. Today our topic is going to be, Blessed are the Peacemakers. Let's begin today in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning in the third verse, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Verse 9 told us, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. This is a very interesting verse, and one that we need to look at more closely. In this fallen world, sometimes peace feels like it's hard to come by. Many situations that we have to go through on a day-to-day basis feel like they're anything but peaceful, and many people that we deal with seem like they're anything but peaceable. With this being the status quo of a fallen world, it may seem like finding peace is an impossibility or something so complex and difficult that it's outside of our reach. When we see the enormity of the problem, we may feel that we're simply not up to the task or that the task could never possibly be dealt with. But that's not what God's Word tells us. Peace is not only possible, it's our inheritance. It belongs to us as the people and children of God. Peace is our portion. So the better we understand it, the better we can operate in it, and the more of it that we'll find. Verse 9 revealed something important about peace. The first half said, Blessed are the peacemakers. The term peacemakers implies that peace can be made, and presumably where there was no peace before. That's not usually how we think of peace. We always tend to think of it as just something that you either do have or don't have, but we almost never think of it as something that can be created or made or built up. But yet that's what the Lord tells us here. Part of the lack of peace that's felt by so many today is rooted in a lack of understanding concerning it. We hear people continually say that they feel like they have no peace, and that's a real feeling that we need to take seriously. The enemy and the circumstances of life lived in a fallen world have a tendency to steal our peace if we don't understand it and guard it. So what do we make of people who do feel this? For those in the world, that's true. They don't have peace. And they never will have it in its true form until they find it in Jesus. We know that. So it's no surprise when worldly people don't feel peace. Why would they? If they don't have the source or the cause of it, then of course they can't have the effect. That's not possible. But for born-again believers, with the Prince of Peace indwelling us, why would we not have peace? Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. Since we have the Spirit within us, each and every one of us does have peace, whether we feel like we do or not. So it's not really a question of do we have it or not. The real question is do we use it or not. And many don't use it. And it's the absence of its effects in their life that makes them feel like they don't have it. The next thing we need to ask is what about the situations where we feel like peace is lacking or people we have to deal with who aren't peaceable people? This is where making peace comes in. Instead of constantly and continually complaining and bewailing the fact that there's no peace to be found, we should make it. Instead of constantly speaking negatively about the situation, we should do something positive about it. We should allow the peace and creative power of God to flow through us to make peace where there is no peace. So what does being a peacemaker actually call for? What does making peace look like on the practical level? The concordance says for the word peacemaker 
that a peacemaker bravely declares God's terms, which makes someone whole. This is the only place that this specific word in the Greek is used in the scripture, which shows its importance. If we will have peace, if we long for peace, if we desire to see peace being brought about, we'll have the necessary motivation to make it, and we'll have the necessary courage to do so bravely. The first thing that we need to note is that the peacemaker has two main roles. Those are preserving peace where it already is, and restoring it where it's been lost. The first of these, preserving peace, is the foundation of being able to make peace. But how do we do this? We know we can't control over people or their words or actions. We can only control ourselves. So we first preserve peace in ourselves by making a real concerted effort to be peaceable people, which is no strange concept. We're told to do this. Romans 12 and 18 says, If it be possible, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. This is what we should desire to be. This is a wise way for us to conduct ourselves. James 3 and 17 tells us, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Being peaceable is a hallmark of wisdom, and we definitely don't want to be foolish. So being peaceable is something that we should make a priority in our life. Peace, as a fruit of the Spirit, like we looked at at other times, starts as a seed. And as you cultivate it, it grows and flourishes. It becomes strong. The environment needs to be right too, in order for it to properly grow. It has to have the right nutrients. It needs to be planted in a willing, sincere, and active spirit. It needs to be watered by the living water, found in communion with God and in reading His Word. And it needs to be exposed to the Son of God, just like plants in the natural need exposure to the sun. Many people feel like they don't have peace because they just haven't cultivated it. Instead of trying to figure out how to get something that they already have, sending themselves on a wild goose chase, looking for something outside of themselves that's already there within them. They simply need to be attentive to it, to make sure that it is everything that it needs to thrive, and seeing that anything that would harm or encumber it is removed. If people would do this, finding peace wouldn't be a problem. Peace would be inevitable, and it would be unstoppable. Isaiah 26 and 3 says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Peace is predicated on trust. We must trust God. We must trust His provision, His wisdom, His sustenance, His ability, His sovereignty. When we do, and when we inspire that same trust in others, we not only keep and preserve the peace that's already there, but we also make peace. We increase it. It becomes more deeply implanted in the hearts of those around us, more deeply ingrained in their minds, and more deeply impressed upon their spirit. That's our job as peacemakers. We can't rely on someone else to do it for us. The Lord's given us all we need to do it ourselves, as the Holy Spirit guides us in the work. We just need to act. The second thing, and the more complex of the two roles, is the restoration of peace, where it was previously lost or forfeited. So what specifically does that entail? Let's go to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, beginning in the 23rd verse, which is referring to Moses, it says, and when he was full forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him, and avenged him that was oppressed, and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove, and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? 
Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. Verse 26 is very revealing. It said, And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove, and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? In the classic Amplified Version, this verse is translated as, Then on the next day he suddenly appeared to some who were quarreling and fighting amongst themselves, and he urged them to make peace and become reconciled, saying, Men, you are brethren, why do you abuse and wrong one another? Here we find that same term again, make peace. Now we know that since we can't control other people, that we can't make peace for them, Moses sold his first hand. Although he urged them to make peace, which was all he could do, they didn't want to make peace, and they refused to do so. Peace, as an expression of God himself, who is peace personified, will only be where it's desired. It won't be where it's not appreciated, respected, or valued. It's too precious of a substance for that. And that's something that we have to understand and be okay with. If we're not, and we're trying to urge others to make peace who clearly have no inclination or desire to do so, we'll be sadly disappointed. But nevertheless, Moses went about it in the right way, and he shows us the way that we reconcile and restore peace. And that's to question the situation, which so many people never do. He asked, why do you wrong one to another? Most people never stop and ask, why is there no peace? What is the root of the problem? Instead of fixing the problem and rooting it out, they have a tendency to just complain about it or to ignore it. But that won't change anything. In order to restore peace, we need to see what stole it in the first place. There are many devices for which the devil tries to steal your peace, but three of the main ones, which are the most potent and the most effective for the enemy, are anger, worry, and fear. Maybe if people desired peace as much as the devil desires to steal it from them, we would find more peace in the lives of Christians, but we don't. We all have a tendency to let our guard down, to become a little more or a little too relaxed at times. And it's when we leave the door to our peace open just a little that the devil finds his opportunity to sneak in and takes what he wants. The better you know and understand your enemy, though, the better we can protect ourselves from his attacks. And in a similar way, the better we know his devices, the more ineffective and powerless they become. The first one of these is anger. Ephesians 4 and 26 says, Be angry and sin not when not the sun go down upon your wrath. Being angry in and of itself isn't wrong. It's not sinful. It's when you get angry at the wrong thing or in the wrong way or to the wrong degree that it can then become sinful. As it relates to peace, anger can steal it easily if we let it. We become angry and that anger festers in our heart. It creates envy, resentment, bitterness, and even hate in some cases. None of those are good. We don't want to harbor any of those feelings in our heart. But if we let them proceed without checking them, we'll find that in proportion to how much they grow, our peace will decrease. Because peace and anger cannot coexist. They're too antithetical. They're too opposed to each other. Having a peaceful spirit and an argumentative, contentious spirit cannot both be true at the same time. One must of necessity yield to the other. But since anger seems to make so much sense and even feel right or good in the moment, we sometimes yield to it without giving much thought to the long-term and spiritual effects of it. The real problem doesn't lie so much in that people get angry, but in the fact that they get angry at things that don't warrant anger. Over time, and especially when people find themselves in situations that are highly stressful, many people allow the threshold of their anger to be lowered. And at first, that may not make much of a difference. They just seem to be slightly more irritable or more contentious than normal, which you think will go away with time. 
But if you do that for long enough, if you let yourself get angry and worked up over small, insignificant, trivial infractions, or even supposed infractions, that will become part of who you are as a person. Just like with anything in life, you get good at what you practice. And if you practice getting angry at small, meaningless things that don't really matter, you'll find that you become an angry, bitter, envious, resentful person. It's inevitable. The way to let go of that anger, the way to raise the threshold again, to restore it to where it should be, is the first question why we're getting angry and why are we so easily angered. That question will force us to come to terms with the real issue. It forces a solution. Ecclesiastes 7 and 9 says, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. The second half of that verse in the Amplified Bible says, For anger dwells in the heart of fools. That shows the real danger of a low threshold of anger. It allows it to influence the spirit of a man, attempting to steal that place in man's life that specifically belongs to God. Instead of holding on to their peace like they're supposed to do, they let it go, and they hold on to their anger instead, refusing to let go. When we do let go of that anger, we're free to take back our peace and to live peaceably. This means that we overlook offenses, that we forgive those who have injured us in some way, and that we give people the benefit of the doubt in our interactions with them. This allows us to be slow to anger. Proverbs 14.29 and the English Standard Version says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Refraining from anger, rooting it out of our life, is one way that we restore and make peace. The second thing is worry. Worry is very similar to fear. There's a lot of overlap that exists between them. In many ways, worry and anxiety are just a lesser form of fear. They're fear in an earlier stage of development. It's worry and anxiety that roll out the red carpet for the spirit of fear to attack us. Robert A. Cook, who was a great preacher and writer from Chicago, once said, Anxiety is just fear with an aspirin in its mouth. If we can stop worry and anxiety, we can prevent fear too in the process. This is how we check the problem early, before it gets to the point where it's really out of control. The problem with worry is that it's severely underestimated. We know that it's not good. That's why we tell others not to worry, but we rarely see how harmful it actually is. When a person tells someone to stop worrying, they usually say something like, Don't worry, it's only a waste of time, and it won't change anything. The people saying this usually have great intentions, and their heart is really for the other person to not worry. But this statement, although partially true, is also very misleading. It's true that worry never changes anything for the better, but it can and invariably does change things for the worse. Probably the most notable and obvious manifestation of this is that the worrier becomes less able to cope with the object of their worry when it does take place. The reason for that is that since they spent all their time worrying and fretting over what was going to happen, they didn't prepare themselves for it. Then when it finally does come, they're not ready, and that only serves to reinforce and solidify worry's place in their heart and opens wide the door for fear to come in. Then the next time they start to worry, they're going to think back to that time and think that worry is justified, when really it's not. Peace is what's justified, and one of the ways to regain and make peace is to be prepared for what's coming. Peace comes through preparation, to know and to be realistic about what's ahead, and then to prepare accordingly. We have to question our worry. We have to see what it's actually doing for us. Because if we look honestly, we'll find that it's doing nothing for us and it's actually only causing harm. Then we root it out. And we do that by trusting in God, not in ourselves or our own strength or ability. We trust in His strength and His ability. The third thing is fear, which we have to be careful about. 
sphere. Being a sphere is also a force, and it's an attracting force. It attracts its object to itself. We can all think of instances, and maybe we even know people, who are so obsessively fearful about something for so long a period of time, and then that very thing that they feared happened to them. It almost seems like it sought them out, because in one way, it really does. Job 3 and 25 says, For the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, and that which I was afraid of has come unto me. The problem came to him. He didn't go to it. That's what unchecked, cuddled fear will do to us. If we allow our fear to get to this point, we won't feel peace. Because how can peace rise to the surface when obsessive and irrational fears choke it out? If your mind is always stayed on something or someone you fear, then it definitely isn't stayed on God, which will prevent peace, always. People don't say it openly, but when they fear to this level, they're implicitly trusting in their fear instead of trusting in God. The way that we destroy fear's stranglehold on our peace is by rebuking it, casting it out, questioning it, seeing why we fear and why it has such an effect on us. When we do, we'll see that our fears aren't grounded in reality, that God's promises far outweigh and overpower any lie that the enemy tries to convince us of. 2 Timothy 1 and 7 says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We're free to have these things because of the God within us. When we know and feel His power, His love, and His wisdom, fear will flee, and we can allow the peace that we have within us to rise to the surface again. The last thing that we need to look at is one of the most pervasive mistakes that Christians make when it comes to peacemaking. There are some people who have adopted the idea that being peaceable means agreeing with others, even if we don't really agree with them in our heart. We do it just to pacify them, to not rock the boat, to maintain the status quo, mistaking that for peace. That may seem like it's peace, but it's not really peace at all. Agreeableness is not the same thing as peacefulness. We may think that since we're at peace with someone else, that we did our job. But is that really what we're supposed to do? We found peace, but at what cost? We may have peace with that person, but in doing so, we forfeited who we really are. We forfeited what we believe. We forfeited our morals, our ethics, our values, and maybe even our faith. That causes us to lose peace with ourselves, and maybe in extreme cases, even with God. That's not worth it. That's why Romans 12 and 18 said, If it be possible, that implies that sometimes it's not possible. There's sometimes our efforts to make peace don't work. Just like with Moses, some people, no matter how hard you try, no matter what you say, don't want peace. They like strife, and they're comfortable with it, and they're not going to change. But just because they live that way doesn't mean that we have to. Moses didn't mistake agreeableness for peacefulness. He disagreed with the men. He stood his ground. He spoke the truth bravely. But then the skeptic will say, why did he flee then? But we have to remember that he spoke the truth first. And if we encounter people who have no desire for peace at all and refuse it every chance they get, we should flee from them too. That's not cowardice, that's wisdom. Nothing good would come from that interaction anyway. Bravery and wisdom are essential parts of being a peacemaker, and we need to have these for ourselves. We need them in operation in our life. When we desire peace, when we long for it, when we do our best to bring it about, we will be able to make peace. The Prince of Peace will bless our efforts, and we will find peace in our lives. And the more we make peace, others that we're around will find that their lives are becoming more peaceful too, and that draws them to Christ. Your decision to live in peace and to make peace plants a seed of peace in the lives of others, which will grow in them, and in that way, peace will spread. 
James 3 and 18 says, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Today's your chance to sow peace in the world, to sow it in your life, in the lives of others, in your situation. Don't miss that opportunity. Don't just think that peace is a thing of your past or something that's unattainable. Reach out in faith and make it. And when we know that we had the Prince of Peace on our side, we know that we can't fail. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for peace today. We thank you that we're free to find our peace in you, that we're free to trust in you, put our faith in you, find our hope in you. Lord, we thank you that you give us perfect peace. And Lord, give us the wisdom and understanding to keep our minds stayed on you, to not look to the right or to the left. Lord, no matter what situation we're in in life, no matter what problems we're faced with, no matter what trials and tribulations we're encountering, we thank you that in spite of all these things, that you still give us peace. Lord, we know that the devil is always after our peace, that he's always trying to steal it. And Lord, today we rebuke his devices. We rebuke the anger. We rebuke the worry. We rebuke the fear that he tries to place upon us, that he tries to oppress us with. We cast these things out of our life. They have no rightful place in our heart. And Lord, today we thank you that we can receive peace from you in their place, that as we lay them down on the altar as a sacrifice before you, that you'll send the fire of your Holy Ghost down to burn them away for good. Lord, we thank you that you implanted that seed of peace within us, that you put it within our heart. Lord, let it grow, let it flourish, let it become strong, and let it bear fruits of its own. And Lord, thank you for using us as a vessel to plant that seed of peace in the lives of those around us, that they may be drawn to you. And Lord, we thank you for the deliverances, for the healings, for the miracles that are about to happen, and for the peace that so many people are going to have in their life. Lord, we give you all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you want to be a peacemaker and have Jesus as a part of your life today, all you need to do is to invite Jesus into your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior. You then need to repent of your sins and ask for His forgiveness. Then you trust that you've been forgiven and you ask for His free gift of eternal life. Now, if you prayed this from a sincere heart and you truly meant it, then you are now a part of the family of God. Welcome to God's family. We want to thank everybody for listening today. We appreciate you taking out your time to spend with us. If you'd like to give us feedback and tell us how much you appreciate this show, you can contact us at kingswordbiblestudy at gmail.com. If you'd like to learn more about this program and this ministry, you can visit kingswordbible.com. We appreciate also if you write a review from wherever you're listening to this podcast from. And if you follow and subscribe so that more people can hear the King's Word for themselves. God bless you. We want you to know that we love you all. And we will see you next week as we continue to study the King's Word together.